Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoo-ah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Gabe S. Done. Hello and welcome to Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. I'm Gabe Dunn and our guest this week is someone that I just went down a rabbit hole of watching a lot of YouTube videos of. So we just said that it was very funny to talk to him in real life. Do you want to let our audience tell like, do you want to tell our audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure thing, Gabe. My name's Timmy Roman Johnson. I'm based in the UK. I live in a city not too far away from London called Brighton, and I run a financial education company, and I've been doing it for the last four years. This is really cool because a lot of my stuff is UK-based, and it's always great to connect with people overseas, particularly from the States. So what is your company called, or what are you known as? I'm known as Mr. Money Jar. I think at this point, There are probably more people who know me as that than my actual name, but like either is fine. Yes, Mr. Money Jar. And so, okay, so I want to talk about finances in the UK because I, you know, reading, I was like reading a bunch of your stuff and I didn't, I'd never heard the word numeracy before. (laughs) I had never, literally (laughs) not at all. Like it's, it was like, Timmy is an ambassador at National Numeracy, an independent UK charity. And I was like, what the hell is numeracy? So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm an ambassador for a charity called National Numeracy. It works all over the country. And essentially its job is to make adults and children in the UK feel more confident about numbers. Mm -hmm. And like you can use the word numeracy synonymously with maths, but Mm. like numeracy is a bit less scary. So like maths is like the actual, you know, the sums and the calculations and like the theory. Numeracy is actually using maths just in your day-to-day life. So if you're numerate, like being literate, that means that you feel confident, like, I don't know, planning your day, planning times up your day, measuring stuff when you're cooking, managing your finances. It's about applying maths to the day-to-day. I have never, like when you just said now that it's like literacy, I was like, oh, of course, of course. (laughs) It's like being comfortable with number version. Yeah, it's a number version of literacy. It's being comfortable with numbers and with like, oh, that makes so much sense because numbers are so scary to people. And like, were you a good student with math? That is a great question, Gabe. My relationship with and also in the UK, we say maths. We maths, like put the S my on. apologies. So, no, no, no. Uh, my apologies. Uh, apolo- and apologies to your listeners as well. So yeah, we yeah, I had a weird relationship with it. Because basically, when I was a child, I really, really loved the subject. Really, really loved maths. Would consider myself like, like, a ner- like a maths nerd. It's cool to be a nerd now, but it definitely wasn't back when I was a kid. And then I would say in my kind of teenage years, I kind of fell out of love with it a little bit. It was like a mixture of things. I think it's a sort of subject that, at least the way it's taught in the UK, if you miss like a couple of lessons, each lesson builds upon the last lesson and then you just don't get it. So that happened to me. And then I got back into maths as a young professional when my first job out of uni, my first permanent job, was at a PR company and a lot of the clients were financial clients like banks and insurance companies and investment companies and I was on the research team and I had a really really brilliant manager who kind of took me under his wing and taught me about spreadsheets and like he was into maths and stuff so I fell back in love with it again but if you told me during that middle period that hey I'd be an ambassador for a national like maths charity I would have said no chance definitely. (laughs) Yeah, that is what's hard about it in school. Like, I didn't intend to talk to you about this, but like, definitely I had a thing where I I wanted to work for NASA and I was like, oh, I'm gonna. But then I realized how much of it was math. 
And I had a similar thing where I had a teacher who was really mean. And I had the thing where you miss a couple days or you don't get one aspect of it. And unlike like, you know, English class or something, you're suddenly like you feel so you're made to feel so stupid. Yeah. And it's like for, for, for lacking knowledge, which mm-hmm. is not stupidity. That's just not knowing something. So, yeah, we had a similar experience and that is not great. I know you said you didn't plan to talk about this, but I think this is a really important thing to talk about because it does relate to money. I've spoken to hundreds of people and the same experience we're talking about where people miss a maths class or two and then they fall behind in the subject and they close the door on maths for the rest of their life and it follows them into adulthood. The exact same thing happens with money where people have a bad experience or maybe they've picked up habits from their parents or from their family members and they just go, oh, do you know what? I'm not good with money. I'm not a money person. I'm just going to leave that to everyone else. And my message to these people is that like, you don't have an intelligence problem. It's just a knowledge problem. Once you have the information, you'll get it. It's quite simple. Yeah, I think it is a subject in school that is very frustrating and that I didn't feel like there was a lot of creativity around because with you know, science, you could kind of be like, okay, here's how I'm going to get this type of thing. Or if you, if you had a class that was, I mean, science, like chemistry, you have to be really specific about, but like with English too, it's like, oh, how did you come to that conclusion? And you're able to kind of be creative. Whereas with math, it would be like, show your work. And if your work wasn't exactly what the teacher wanted, it didn't matter if you got the right answer, you were still in trouble. And so I think like you, A lot of people just go, I mean, me particularly now I'm realizing it as I'm talking to you is that I was just like, I'm not a numbers person. Like, I'm just not a numbers person. I'm not a math person. And you do shut that door, especially if you have. And I think maybe people have this experience. And I don't know why math teachers are mean, but like, you know, your English teacher is so nice and warm and your math teacher is notoriously she was she was like the meanest teacher at our school. And so it's just kind of like, why is that the case? And then you decide, okay, I now money is scary or you have some kind of fight or flight when you look at numbers. I think the reason I'm I'm kind of having this conversation with you for the first time as well. And what's come to mind for me is whereas in something like English, it, this kind of it's like open to interpretation. Why did Romeo say the thing? Well, mm-hmm. I think this and you think that and like Shakespeare's not around to confirm it, but like one plus one is two. Mm-hmm. and like will always be too. So I think there's maybe an expectation there that you're going to get the right answer. But I think when it comes to problem solving, which is essentially what math should be trying to teach you, it's actually about the journey, uh, less so the conclusion, one. And two, adult life just doesn't work that way. You know, in, in the UK, if, if you do a driving test and you don't pass it, you pay some more money and then you just take the driving test again. I don't know why we do this to kids where it's like if you're wrong, you're wrong forever. If we did that to driving, there'd be hardly any cars on the streets because hardly anyone passes first time. There is this understanding that you might not do it and that Mm -hmm. you can just retake it, like brush up and and retake it again. So yeah, I completely agree with you on that point. And I think losing out on money or making a money mistake is maybe tantamount to getting in a car accident. So then we just get back in the car and try it again. So how did you, so you came off of that other job and then how did you say okay i'm going to start making money content because i do wonder too like in the uk here in the us i've seen an incredible like i started this podcast in 2016 and i've seen Mm -hmm. an incredible jump in money content makers who are not just cis straight white men who are in their 40s and 50s like it really Mm -hmm. has become so much more diversified in the last five years than it was when i started So is that sort of the situation in the UK too, where you're like, I'm not seeing a lot of people who look like me making this stuff? No, I would say back when I started, so that like, yeah, you're you're one of the first financial creators that I'd ever come across, like in any medium ever. Like genuinely, I listened to your first episode where your mom said that you were her pension. And I was like, yeah, that's that's very much very much like what it's like in my family's culture, because I come from a British Nigerian household. Back when I first started and, and and listening to the Bad With Money podcast was part of like my financial come up or glow up, if you will. In 2016, 2017, I went through a huge personal development journey and I listened to loads of podcasts, read loads of books because I, w- I had loads of questions about money as a young person. And I wanted to like, 
understand how money works. Like, how do you build wealth? How do you get on the property ladder? How do you do this thing called investing that's supposed to be really important, but I don't know a thing about it? What is a pension? How do you save towards your retirement? Now, at the time I was doing this, I would say that the sector was fairly diversified in terms of the sorts of people that were creating content. What it wasn't diversified in was where the people were based. So it was very dollars-based very like US focused was my experience. If you ask people what their favorite money book was, it was always Rich Dad, Poor Dad. There was no UK equivalent really. And at that time I thought, okay, if I start making financial content that's similar to what's going on in the US, but I simply did it in pounds and pence, then it would gain traction in the UK and it would help people out in the UK. And of course, when it comes to things like investments and taxes and retirement savings and stuff, there are completely different rules depending on what country you're in. So a lot of the stuff that people, were, you know, we don't have 401ks and Roth IRAs in the UK. We have completely different accounts. And then we have like ISA accounts in this country, which are kind of tax advantage savings accounts, which you don't have in the US. So I chose to diversify in terms of location. And now, yeah, there are so many different types of financial creators. There are, goodness, there are, there are mums, there are students, there are the insurance people, there are the stocks people. I consider myself to be a, bit more of a, be a bit more of a generalist. So I talk about everything across the board and I speak to kind of all sorts of different audiences as well. I would say like weirdly, yeah, if you'd looked at something like this, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, you would have had a very homogenous demographic. I'll put it that way. But now I would say that the cis-straight white man, 40, 50-year-old, is actually in the minority now when you look at who's creating online. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because when I'm looking to work with someone, I really need to be able to get someone fast. My job works very fast. Podcasts work very fast. And I've actually been looking for an assistant and I don't need to waste time sorting through matches without getting the highest quality person, right? When I'm looking to hire someone, whether that's a grant writer or a musician or something like that, it's very overwhelming because you get a lot of messages, but you're not able to like parse through yourself which ones are actually worth looking at. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash badwithmoney right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash badwithmoney terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? First, the bad news. Mint is shutting down. Now, good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. That's right. I use Mint and now I'm using Monarch Money. It is very stressful, confusing, and time-consuming to manage my finances. I've tried other finance apps. They don't really work. Like, you know, I was very committed to Mint, and then I was uh, deeply sad when Mint went away. But now I have tried Monarch. It's so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I mean, I really value a company that is proactively looking at how to make finances easier. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, also has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Can you imagine being able to have a budget app with your partner? That is wild. You can see all your finances, you can collaborate on your budget, you can get insights on your cash flow and reoccurring transactions. It's a very easy way to manage a household's finances. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. 
create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budget app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y slash badmoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 37,025-1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. If you have all the information about your business in one place, you can make way better decisions. And this is an unprecedented offer, meaning this is totally worth your time. As someone who runs a business, having all of this together in order to close my books, that would be invaluable. It's a time saver. It's literally the biggest time saver. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. That's netsuite.com slash badwithmoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. Let's go to the UK and I'm going to ask some questions that maybe you and UK listeners are going to laugh at, but do you guys, okay. do you guys have a stock market? Yeah, we do. Like an, like an, a UK stock market. Yeah, we do. If you give the, give the US version of what you're thinking about and then I'll translate into the UK version. Like, do you have individual stocks and companies and they're public and private and you invest in them and you have like a Wall Street Yep, yep. So we have the City of London, that's the financial centre of London, and that sort of like bank sort of area. That's where the Bank of England is. That's where the Royal Exchange is. We do have I'll just I'll give like the US equivalent and I'll give the UK equivalent. Okay. So in the US you have the S P five hundred, which is the largest five hundred US stocks. In the UK, our premier index is called the FTSE one hundred, which is the biggest one hundred UK companies. FTSE stands for Financial Times Stock Exchange, I believe. That's and FTSE so Russell cute. Is, the re- is the research company behind it that compiled the FTSE index back in the 80s. And you got like Barclays Bank. Have you heard of Barclays Bank before? Yeah. EasyJet, Tesco. Yes, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Tesco, those are yeah. the big publicly traded UK companies. And we have private companies too. In the UK, a private company is called a limited company or LTD. Mm. And okay. I believe the US equivalent is an LLC. LLC, yeah. LLC, yeah. So we've got a stock market. You can invest. We've got stockbrokers over here. Vanguard is here, actually. Quite popular because it's got really low fees. But we've got another big, I'd say the Vanguard equivalent in the UK is called Hargreaves Lansdowne. And that's like the UK's biggest broker. But there are many similarities. Yeah, that's what I have to say about that. And can you invest? You can invest in the U.S. stock market, right? If you want, we can to. invest in the U.S. stock market over here mm-hmm. by investing into tracker funds administered by UK companies. Oh. So you can invest into like there's a company here called Legal and General, and they're mm-hmm. like an investment kind of research firm, and they administer tracker funds that track the S and P five hundred that track the global stock market even. And you can also invest 
directly into US stocks from the UK as well. But you have to fill in what's called a W8BEN form or W8BEN form, which just makes sure that you're, it makes sure you're on the right side of the tax rules. Because okay. I wanted to buy, it was either like Nintendo stock or Apple stock directly at one point, and I had to fill in one of these tax forms. There is an added wrinkle though, and this always blows people's mind when I mention it, that I, I am actually a US citizen. I was actually born in the States. And I became a British citizen relatively recently in my life. I had to do a citizenship test and everything and answer questions about the Queen and about Big Ben and stuff that people <laughs> from this country don't even like know about. So my situation's a bit weird. Like there are certain UK brokers that I can't use because you can't be a dual citizen as I am at the moment. Did you go, did you go in and just you're the only person with the type of British accent you have? You're like, what do you mean? Like you go in to take the test and you're like, I'm American, but you sound like this. Yeah, well, it's because I've been here my whole life. I li- right. Like up until 2016, I'd never actually been to America. I, wow. I was born as a baby and then taken. <laughs> I've only been there once. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to go back and get really basic. What is the Bank of England? The Bank of England is a government owned but independently run bank it's the central bank of the uk it's government okay. owned, it's independently run and it's in charge of monetary policy and its main job is to like make sure the monetary system is stable and to make sure that inflation doesn't go too crazy and at the moment the monetary system is not stable and inflation has gone crazy yeah we're having lots of kind of interest rate hikes so prices are high and then interest rates are being risen. So people's mortgage payments are going up and that's, you know, affecting renters downstream and stuff. But that's what the Bank of England is. And if you come to the UK, you can visit it. They do exhibitions and stuff there. You can actually enter the building. And if you go into, I'll get super specific now. Like if you go, if you fly into like Gatwick or something and you go to London Bridge train station, it's near, it's near Tower Bridge. That's okay. it. Like it's walking distance from Tower Bridge. To Bank okay. Okay. I've been to London in, oh gosh, 2007, maybe, or 2005, one time. Or I was there for like a month for like an exchange program. So I know a little bit, but yeah. So, okay. And then what was the other one that you said? Bank of England. And then what was the other one? The other building is the Royal Exchange. That building, you will know more by the way that it looks like. It looks like it's supposed to be the Bank of England, just because of the way that the building looks, looks and location. But it's just another one of the many iconic buildings in the in the city of London. If you go to that part of London, you're in what's essential, essentially the the financial kind of centre. That's where a lot of banking institutions are. That's where I believe the London Stock Exchange is, the, the LSE. But then you've also got Canary Wharf, which is not in central London, is more towards the east. And that is where a lot of kind of, where can I say it looks like? It's got like a lot of skyscrapers mm-hmm. in it. So I guess it looks kind of like a baby, baby version of like New York or something. But okay. you got loads of big kind of bank buildings there, including American ones. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of like a financial district or Wall Street kind of thing. Mm. So what? So inflation is on my list to talk about. So what is going on in the UK right now with inflation and that sort of stuff? Because... I know that, like, I think, like, Americans think that we're the only country that's ever existed. So if you could give a (laughs) a rundown on, like, what's going on financially right now in in England. Yeah, a lot of things that are happening to developed economies around the world. A lot of us are going through the same pain, right? Which is that we had COVID. We had to lock down the economy for, like, two years. We had to print a bunch of money to support people who otherwise would have been in really dire financial circumstances. And we've emerged from that and we're having to recoup a lot of those costs. And the way that governments are choosing to do that, or at least the UK government at least, is by raising taxes or freezing tax thresholds so that like tax receipts increase. But also because of inflation, by raising interest rates to kind of squeeze people's disposable income because it makes the cost of debt more expensive. So COVID has been a major factor. Like, so you had to, we had to lock down the economy, talk less of all of the supply chain disruption and all of the sickness. 
that COVID caused. So that's one factor. A second factor is the war in Ukraine. So there are many areas in the UK in which we do not create or manufacture anything. We're a way, way smaller country than the US. I believe US is about 300 million people. UK is about 70 million people. And we're a net importer of a lot of things. So when the war in Ukraine kicked off, like we had a huge squeeze on energy supply in this country and the price of energy went through the roof. Like it's come down now, but a lot of people's day-to-day essential stuff that we'd normally import into the country, like energy, uh, food, like groceries and stuff, all these things shot up in price. And that was really difficult for everyone because like you want to keep the prices of things down and you want to reduce the demand of such things, but people are going to eat. Like, it doesn't matter how expensive food is, people are still going to have to eat. And that's been really tricky. And then there's a third factor, which is kind of a hot button, slightly controversial issue, if you want to call it that, in the UK. And to a certain extent, the government isn't acknowledging this fully, which is that Brexit is has just made everything worse. So all the stuff that I've just described happened. But the fact that we left the EU has made it particularly hard on the UK, as you would expect. You know, Mm -hmm. if you leave a single market, it is going to have some impacts. And in our cases, it's made us more difficult to trade with. It's impacted the value of the pound versus other currencies. And it's just led to a lot of kind of red tape and bureaucracy and having to rewrite all the rules again. What's been really difficult about that in the UK is that when you speak to the government that's in charge at the moment, they don't fully want to acknowledge that. And I think that this is because they've been in charge for so long. They've been in charge for since 2010. So like 13, 14 years. That no matter how far back you go in recent history now, every decision that's sort of gone wrong, they were in power at the time. And we don't have a political system. And I don't know if it's the same in the US where people can go, we made a mistake, we're going to fix it. The minute they acknowledge that Brexit was a mistake, that is just going to kickstart a chain reaction of, well, if Brexit was a mistake, then why did you do that? And why did you do mm-hmm. that? So whenever the prime minister talks about it, he's just like, nope, it's fine. The <laughs> hardship we're going through now has got nothing to do with, with the fact that we left the EU. It's all about COVID. It's all about Putin. And it's like, come on, man. Like, even... If we did Brexit well, it would still bring about difficulties. Like, what are you talking right. about? Is it the same you're talking about? It's the same political party that's been in power? The Conservative time? Party. Yeah. yeah. And but not the same. You guys cycle through prime ministers. It's just so just so happens that. Oh, we love we, we love a prime minister. We had three <laughs> last year. Bring it on. <laughs> but somehow Boris, they're all from the same Liz. party. Yeah, we had Boris. We had Liz. We had Rishi. I... You know, the more prime ministers, the better, I say. Oh, my God. But but they're all from the same party. Yeah, because basically I'm not a po- I'm not a politics right. specialist. So apologies to anyone who feels I've oversimplified this or like I'm getting anything wrong. But essentially you vote in a party and you give the lead like the leader of that party becomes the PM mm-hmm. and that leader essentially has to deliver the manifesto that they have campaigned on to get the win. But if that leader, if the PM is then ousted, then there is a leadership contest within the party to decide who's going to replace him as a PM because they've still, the the party has still been voted in for that five-year election cycle. So that was Boris Johnson. Okay. But then... He had, we had a scandal in the UK called Partygate, where it turned out that during <laughs> lockdown, number 10 Downing Street was just having like loads of parties and breaking loads of lockdown rules at the same time as telling people to stay at home, at the same time as telling people they can go to funerals and stuff. And it was a massively long and drawn out scandal. Boris Johnson got ousted. Loads of people resigned from under him. He got ousted. And then they had a leadership contest to decide who would replace him. And that person was Liz Truss. Mm -hmm. Liz Truss then brought in a bunch of policies towards the end of last year, which completely like messed up the financial markets. They announced a bunch of financial policies, which just made the markets go haywire. Like what? She was essentially, they announced a bunch of 
tax cuts. Okay. So a loss of government revenue without an equivalent amount of here's how we're going to make that money back. And the mortgage market went crazy and the pound went crazy and like the stock market like threw a wobble as well. So after 44 days, I believe, she was out. She resigned. And then Rishi Sunak was then voted in by his party, not by the people, but by his party as an ex-leader. And now he's a PM and then he's been in power ever since. Wow. Okay. It's been it's been like a real life sitcom the last <laughs> two and a half years in the UK. Like the like, thick of it. Yeah. Wait, no, like better than the thick of it. <laughs> the thick of it is like fictional, but the, it turns out that the real life version is actually way more crazy than you could imagine. Chaotic. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So I want to talk about the UK. I want to talk about class in the UK, which we touched on a mm. bit in another episode, actually, with a not British person. It was just my opinions based on literally having seen Love Island. So so there seems to be more of an acknowledgement of class differences in the UK. I don't know if that's the correct impression, but that there seems to be maybe because of the the ways in which the accents are so different based on where you're from. But like, would you say that they're like, how do people address class? Is there like a way, you know, I think I see a lot of people being like, oh, you're posh. Oh, you're working class. Like, is there sort of like a big discrepancy? And is that like causing discord? Or is there I know, like in the US, there's like a, a housing crisis that's happening or like a job crisis that's happening. Would you say that there is a large class divide? There is class in the UK. It's a funny one because, and I'm speaking purely from my own experience here, it's a funny one because it is both acknowledged in a really straight up way that there are working class people and that there are middle class people and that there are like upper class people. But then it's also kind of not acknowledged as well. But I think if you were to ask most people privately, is there class in the UK? They will all go, yeah, definitely. Of course there's class. And generally speaking, again, just purely from my experience, there is sort of a pride associated with coming from a working class background. And or particularly if you've achieved success, having had those origins, there is a pride in going, look, I, I come from a working class family. You know, neither my parents used to earn very much, but I went to uni and I this and I that and I got this job. And like people will say that you'll rarely hear anyone say, yeah, I'm from a middle class family and stuff is great and I have a nice house. You'll never hear anyone saying that. So I think and then like in terms of like upper class, in fact, the only thing, any acknowledgement of upper class I've heard is our prime minister once famously said, that he has no working class friends when he was a student or he doesn't know any working class people. So this is what I'm saying. It's like, 
You wouldn't have an upper class person say that to a working class person directly, but there is this acknowledgement within private circles that class exists. Now, it's really interesting that you mentioned this because I pulled up a, a tab just now. If you want to understand, obviously, there is no perfect way to define something like class, right? Because it's a social almost concept. But there is something on the BBC website called the Great British Class Calculator. And it is a tool which is uh, like related to the, the UK Great British Class Survey, which the BBC launched in January 2021. So you can actually search the Great British Class Calculator and it will ask you a bunch of questions and then it will tell you what class you most probably are based on those questions. Those questions are split across the econo the, your economic circumstances, your social circle circumstances, and your cultural circumstances. So to give, give you a flavor of some of the questions, it asks you under the economic banner what your annual household income is and whether you rent or own a property. Under the social banner, it asks which of these people do you know socially? And it's like, do you know any secretaries? Do you know a nurse? Do you know a teacher? Do you know a cleaner? Do you know an accountant? Do you know a chief executive? And then under the cultural banner, it says, which of these cultural activities do you take part in? Go to stately homes, go to the opera, listen to jazz, do arts and crafts, watch dance or ballet, watch sports. So as you can see, it's kind of an imperfect like way that you're getting to that answer. But I think I filled it out and it said that I'm, I was on the lower end of middle class based upon my earnings the sorts of people I knew and the sorts of things I did. But like, of course, anyone can go to the opera. You know, it's not restricted. Right. They're not going to decline you at the door. <laughs> well, they might, depending on what you're wearing. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but I do think the the people you know aspect is very interesting. Like your prime minister saying that. And then also the idea of, I think in the US too, people don't acknowledge that there, there are differences in like who might have to do something like I think and this may be controversial, but I think there are a lot of leftists who are like very anti the military industrial complex, anti the military in the US, which mm. I totally understand. But how many of those people have friends or family who, because of their economic circumstances, join the military mm -hmm. and like a lot of them do not. And, yeah. you know, I think like my sister-in-law's in the Navy and I hold both truths, right? Like she, did she have a great time at the Navy? No. We interviewed her on this show mm. about that. She, I would say, had a l less to middling experience in the Navy, but that's how she became a doctor. Whereas like someone else might be like, well, I know a doctor, but I don't know like anyone who served or who who had to take a job in, you know, a way to pay for college or medical school that was less than ideal or something like that. And so I do wonder like how often it's like we're against this type of thing, but we don't know any people who've who work that way. And also I have noticed what you've what you've been saying about the pride in coming from working class background. Because again, I am so sorry that my reference is entirely Love Island. But <laughs> like I've never watched that. Okay. So I talked about it on on another episode, but like on The Bachelor in the US, people are nurses or like, you know, they have these jobs that are a bit more middle class, upper class. And I was trying to think if anyone on The Bachelor's job had ever been plumber or construction or something like that. And that's not entirely I I'm sure there have been, but it's not the ways in which like someone comes into Love Island. And they'll say, oh, what do you do? And he'll say, you know, I work, I'm a woodworker or whatever. I'm a secretary. And that's not really, a. nobody really cares. They only care if someone comes in and they're very clearly posh. Then people are like, whoa. So I just like noticed that that super big difference where like, I think in the UK, there is a, there, you're right. There is like a pride in being like, I work with my hands. Whereas in the U.S., that would be seen as like, oh, maybe they're not a good fit to date, you know? Yeah, I, I think that in the U.K., again, speaking purely from my own sense of this, that trades are beginning to make a resurgence as well. So I think if someone works in an office, there might be a sense of, oh, that's that's like the normal thing to do. That's That's kind of boring. But if someone goes, oh, I do carpentry or I'm an electrician and 
particularly if they earn a lot of money doing it, there's almost a respect there like, oh, wow, you actually know how to do stuff like practically in the real world. And certainly when it comes to the education system, the yeah, the educational institutions and, and like the government are trying to diversify. I don't know how well people say they're doing, but they're trying to diversify the ways in which people can make money when they grow up because not everyone is going to want to go to uni or, or college or, or like study and stuff. Some people are better with their hands. And I believe in creating more choice rather than less. I think final thing I'll say on the class point, which is really interesting and really relevant to the last year is that obviously the queen passed away and we have a very kind of clear royal presence in the UK at all time. Like the queen and now king is are like on all of our banknotes and all of our coins and you can go and stand outside Buckingham Palace and kind of look at it and stuff. And when, when the Queen died, the country basically shut down for like a week or two. And there are all these processes that just like, they just came into place, like the funeral and we had the queue. Did you hear about the queue? No. We had a queue that was like miles long to go and see the Queen's body. Jesus. It's called lying lying in state yeah if you google the queue the uk like queuing is like a professional sport here like it should be uh, an olympic sport because lining we would up. take the gold in it lining up including like famous people so david beckham joined the queue and people were in the queue talking and then it was like oh is that that's david beckham oh my goodness and people were like sleeping and like camping and i think a lot of that was to do with coming out of COVID and people really seeking community and like connection and stuff. I think it really brought everyone together. But I think as what well, like around the acknowledging where the class exists point, it is pretty difficult to not acknowledge it when you have such a clear royal presence in this country, which you don't have in the US. So let me let me ask about that, because I think there's been a backlash now onto the idea of the monarchy and did they earn their place and why are they there and why is there why are there people on the streets when there's a whole palace, you know, like, have you seen a shift towards I mean, because we are talking about working class people having more pride. It is very interesting because our president doesn't really make that much money and also isn't really allowed to like do stuff for money. People don't realize this. They're not allowed to do stuff for money really while they're in office. Trump did, but whatever. <laughs> but do you see like a a difference in terms of like the view of the the monarchy and the the class system of like, you know what, this is why should we have this? Yeah. I'm conscious that There'll be a lot of you uh, American listeners listening to this, which is why I'm trying to caveat everything as just my point of view, because it really, really does depend on who you speak to. There'll be some people who love the monarchy and will never want to see it disassembled. And my sense is that that might be more of like an older generation type of thing. But there are some people who think that the monarchy is really bad and shouldn't exist. And whenever there's a royal family type thing going on, they will protest in the streets. They'll throw people through eggs at King Charles when he was kind of doing one of his procession type things last year. I think that most people liked Queen Elizabeth II, mm -hmm. regardless of the royal family. I think that there was a lot of respect. I, I felt this way about her personally, that you know, I had a lot of respect for someone who's, Dad died when they were 25 and were told, yeah, you're just going to have to be the queen now. Mm -hmm. And she did that job for 70 years. And there was something quite symbolic about her. She was almost like the face of the country. And she lived through a lot. Mm -hmm. Like she was coronated in the 50s, I want to say. And you go back when she died, they went back for her life. She's met. So whilst, you know, presidents come and go and prime ministers come and go and countries change names and there are wars and this that and the other she was the queen throughout all of that and she'd seen a lot and i mm -hmm. think that her counsel to prime ministers of this country was actually really valuable because she was just an older person with a lot of life experience sentiment towards king charles from what i can see isn't like quite the same like he's ascended the throne a lot later mm -hmm. and you know it remains to be seen what he does with that mantle 
He seems to be really big on like climate change stuff, which I guess is positive. But I don't know. The royal, fa- royal family is a bit weird. But do people care about, oh, they're spending so much money on these weddings. They're spending so much money on these. Is it like state? Is it like the country's money? There are people that are unhappy about that. Yes. But there's a really interesting YouTube channel by a creator called CGP Grey. And he does. He did a video. It's quite old now, but it's worth a watch about how the royal family essentially pay for themselves. Oh, so because of the amount of tourism, like a lot of money they generate for this country is through tourism, either through people wanting to see them or to see like lands that they that they own. And so there is that argument that some people will raise, saying, "Yes, they spend money on all these." weddings and all, the, all these processions and stuff. But at the end of the day, they pay for themselves. But the optics of these things is like a completely different like thing, right? Like when King Charles was coronated and when he came to the throne, there was this sense of like, we're in a cost of living crisis. We can't be seen to be being too fanciful mm-hmm. with this, given the economic situation in the country. And then of course, you have... What does the royal family think of itself? You have everything that's happened with Harry and Meghan. Right. And what's really interesting about human behavior is that stuff rarely implodes in one go. Mm -hmm. Stuff disintegrates slowly over time. So I don't know if if you had a Harry and Meghan each generation. Right. For the next few generations, you wouldn't have any royal family left. So it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens with it going forwards. Yeah. Okay, I would be remiss if we didn't discuss the healthcare situation briefly. Sure. How is that different in the way you guys approach healthcare? Because in the US, people go bankrupt. <laughs> people have medical debt and their lives are ruined. So with you guys having the NHS, like, is that what are what are the sentiments around that? And do you guys see us as just like terrible? But also like, how how does that affect like money stuff? Like you guys don't, what are you not paying for? Yeah, we, we we have a national health service and the kind of the mantra is that it provides health care to all UK citizens, residents at the point of need. And That's we it. do have, yeah, we, we have, and it was brought in after the Second World War. And if you need surgery or if you need health care, because you, you live in the UK because you're a UK citizen, you can book a doctor's appointment and you can be seen by someone and it's free. Now, how soon you'll be seen mm. is like a slightly different thing. The NHS is a wonderful institution, but it's under a lot of pressure and it's historically been quite underfunded. And so the vi- there's the vision of what the NHS could be, but then there's what it is in practice. You can get private healthcare, but you can also just be seen for free. But to give you an example, right? Like last year, I had to have a procedure done, like a, a minor a minor one. I was told that I could wait four to five weeks to see a doctor, or I could go to a private kind of clinic the next day and pay 90 pounds and be seen. So I paid 90 pounds and I was seen the next day. Mm. That's what I, and it was like to look at my ear. Right. And I was having balance issues and like hearing issues. And I was like, I can't afford to be like this for the next four to five weeks. I paid the money and I was seen. The NHS, I think, has always been looked upon favorably, but this went stratospheric during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So NHS workers were heralded as heroes during the pandemic. Pete, we we had this thing where we would clap for them every week. Right. Like every Thursday, we would go to our balconies and we would clap for them, which in a way I kind of feel I kind of regret doing that because once we emerged from COVID, NHS workers were then striking because of not being paid enough. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, you want to you want to do stuff that actually has an impact on something. You don't just want to like clap emptily sure. people that are saving people's lives. Sure. But that's the situation in the UK. And I'd love to see the NHS remain. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great idea. 
if it can be made to work. And yes, we look at the US and we don't understand how it is that people are going bankrupt to like get medical care. We don't get that. Because they've convinced us here that if we if we didn't if we had socialized medicine, if we didn't have private insurance companies, we would lose so much money and a huge economic thing and we would we would not have this entire industry and what would happen and it's like i don't know we a lot of stuff that the u.s says could not be done other countries have done it like especially with gun control too they're like we couldn't possibly take all the guns and i'm like new zealand did it yeah like so i think that people give the, the guns thing is brilliant and is a fantastic like analogy to the healthcare thing in, in the sense of like, clearly the gun policies are not working. Right. No, even if, even if one child is hurt by a gun, talk right. less of hundreds of kids, then that just means that the policy is not working and you need to change it. But you get told, well, actually I don't want to speak on behalf of like Americans because it's not an issue that I'm not that, not that knowledgeable on. Mm-hmm. But the sense that I get is that like, no, like we have to have the guns because the reason that the reasons for having them outweigh the reasons for not having them. Yeah. Now, could America do like change change the healthcare system in the exact same way that the UK did it? Like maybe not. Yeah. It's a much bigger country, and therefore I imagine there'll be different considerations there in terms of rolling it out and like it's structured into state. There like many more states, and there are parts of the UK. But I would at least hope that people agreed with the principle of you shouldn't have to pay money for like life. Like if you need life saving surgery, if you need a treatment, you shouldn't be thinking, I want to do this, but it's going to be too expensive because it's it's just very it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like I'm not in charge of running a country, (laughs) thankfully, but like if I was, I would want to solve for food security, shelter, safety, solve for all of that. That's why I think the government should be in charge of. So people are not worrying about that stuff. And then people, and then, yeah, if you want to pay for leisure activities, if you want to pay for like the self-actualization type things, then go for it. But make sure that people can eat and like receive healthcare first. It's also the NHS and gun control thing goes together because it's it's access to mental health care too which is also dovetailed with the housing crisis, which is also like it's it all sort of maybe comes back to socialized medicine, actually. I was very, very saddened and surprised to read that suicide is, I think, well, at the time I read it, the 10th biggest cause of death in the, in the United States. And that even though I think the latest data where I saw, there was something like 36,000 gun deaths in the US, the latest records, two thirds of those were suicides. Yep. Yeah. So some like something clearly isn't working and I'm not saying I have the answers, but like I think the first thing to do is to agree that the current rules and access to firearms um, aren't working and then to try and like fix the stuff that we're talking about. Right. Because it's like serious stuff. I'm sure look, the US is a much younger country than the UK. I'm sure you'll come around to it. Maybe. I don't know. It's also funny because I think that people are like, we have to have guns. Why? Because the Second Amendment. Why? I don't know. England might come back over. (laughs) It's like, no, they're not coming back over. I promise you. So I wanted to close out with, like I said, I watched some videos that you were in and this really struck me as very interesting is something that you said, which we were talking about allocating resources. And you were saying that like, and this is like a a futzed quote of what you said, but it was like, Maybe one day we'll come up with a way to allocate resources and incentivize people that doesn't require money. Money is only 5,000 years old. And then you said something very funny, which was, imagine going to your mom's house and she sends you an invoice. So I wanted to close out. Can you talk about it? Because when you were talking about this, you were like, look, and I'm being an idealist here. But I do want to end on like, what is that idealist idea that you were trying to get across? Yeah, I... Like, we 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 are living in a capitalist like world at the moment. And so it seems like the way that we've organized things and the way that we allocate resources has A, always been this way and is B, the best way to do it. And it's clearly not. Money, as you just as you just said that I said, is like, it's a few thousand years old. The first company ever, I think, was a thousand years ago. And 
kind of if we, if we take Adam Smith to be the father of like modern day capitalism, I think Wealth of Nations was written about 250 years ago, and people have been playing tennis for longer than that. So all these things that we think are like the way to do stuff are clearly not the way to do stuff. They're just how we're doing them now. And we need to have an open mind and think, okay, well, maybe there's a different way to incentivize people to, to like go to an office and work. Or maybe there's a different way that you obtain food or that you transact with another person. I saw a tweet once, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it said that like, you know, you've got all these millions of species on the planet, but humans are the only ones that pay to live here. And it's like, how did we end up in this situation? I, if in my idealist viewpoint, I would have money. And maybe this is like thousands, thousands of years in the future. I would have money, but you wouldn't, but your ability to, as we were just talking about, the bottom couple levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your ability to access healthcare, to be able to eat, to be able to have a roof over your head would not be 100% dependent on you having enough money in the bank. So what I'm saying is the worst person off in a country or in an economy would still have a really good standard of living. If that was the case, then fine. Yeah, you can make as much money as you like. Be a multi-bajillionaire if you like. But for as long as there are people living on the streets, people who are starving in their homes, like we've got a lot of poverty in the UK. It's like the seventh richest country in the world. We've got poverty. We've got homeless people. We've got people who are like working jobs their whole life that they hate because if they don't do that, then they won't have somewhere to live. And I'm saying that that can be improved upon and that the answer might not be money. To give a tangible example, I read a book called Andrew Yang, a book by Andrew Yang called The War on Normal People. And it kind of talks about universal basic income. We've had him on the show. We've had him on the show. UBI is a big thing that I I think it could work. I think I think it's gonna I think it's gonna have to happen, particularly when you look at what's happening with like technology and automation and stuff. But he talks about a social credit system whereby, you know, in small kind of localized groups, localized economies, if you perform a task for someone else, maybe you don't earn money, maybe you get a kind of social credit, which you can trade off against someone else's social credit. Maybe we just have places where it's just people doing favors for each other. Maybe not the whole thing. I have friends who went to a repair cafe once. Have you heard of a repair cafe? No. It's literally a place, like a pop-up, where they all meet in like a hall and everyone with the skills that they have just helps everyone else. So if you know how to sew, then you offer your sewing services. If you know how to fix phone screens, then you you do that. And you can go there with like broken, with a broken phone, you can go there with clothes that are like torn. And so long as you help someone else, then someone else will help you. And there's no money being spent there. It's just people helping each other, which is what we've been doing for the majority of human existence. That's all I was trying to say. I love that, a repair cafe. I've said that on this show. I've said this on the show before, but a while ago when I first moved to L.A., I had a thing where it was a a spreadsheet and a bunch of my friends were in it and you would put your name and your phone number and then your skills. And then if you wanted to look for something, if you were like, oh, my computer's broken, you look through, you go, oh, this person fixes computers and then you could just call them. And I was like, that's something that maybe more people should do. That's mutual aid, kind of. But yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. And where can people find you and more of your work? Thank you very much for having me, Gabe. I am at Mr. Money Jar. It's like a jar full of money across most of the social media platforms. I'm also Timmy Merriman Johnson on LinkedIn. And this has been so awesome to speak to you. Like this has been one 53 minute and 45 second out of body experience for me, honestly. A really, really interesting conversation as well, because I don't normally get, I need to speak to people from from the US more because I think it's really cool how there's some similarities between our two countries, but they're also like massively different in some ways as well. So it's been a cool conversation. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Uh, Thank you for doing it. I feel the same way. I want to do more international episodes, so I appreciate it. Bad With Money with Gabe Shane Dunn is a production of Noted Bisexual, produced by Melissa D. Montz and Diamond M. Print Productions, edited by Diane King, post-production sound by Coco Lorenz. 
and music by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen, as sung by Sam Barbera. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.